from your favorite podcatchers and our YouTube channel featuring scenic videos, this is Kaiju Vision Radio, Episode 33, Godzilla Against Mechagodzilla. fans and kaiju lovers and welcome to kaiju vision radio a podcast about the appreciation of giant monster movies and discovering their historical and cultural value i'm nathan marchand and i'm brian scherschel and this week we're about halfway through the millennium series and we're getting back to masaki tezuka who is bringing us his second entry in the millennium series this time it's godzilla against mechagodzilla from 2002 yes this is the second movie of what i would call the tezuka trilogy We're probably going to differ on this one a little bit, opinion-wise. Yeah, I have opinions. Very strong opinions on this one. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to be the the nice guy for this because (laughs) I like these Tezuka movies overall. So we'll we'll get into this. Our related topics will be women in the Godzilla movies and the firing of Makiko Tanaka. But before we get to all of that, it's time for that film description. Take it away, Brian. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. Godzilla is a force of nature. He is a member of the same species as the creature that ravaged Tokyo in 1954. He attacks Japan with no apparent motivation, although it's postulated that he is attracted by Kiryu. Mechagodzilla, or Kiryu, or MFS-3, is an advanced cyborg created and controlled by the Japanese Xenomorph Self-Defense Force, or JXSDF. It has biological components derived from the DNA of the original Godzilla. Lieutenant Akane Yoshiro is a self-loathing and guilt-ridden JXSDF pilot recruited as part of the Kiryu Squadron, despite getting her entire team killed by Godzilla. Tokumitsu Yuhara, a compassionate biologist, helps design Kiryu after attracting the JXSDF's attention with his impressive cybernetics work. His daughter, Sara Yuhara, is a sensitive and lonely girl who forms a friendship with Akane due to their similarities. Hayato Igarashi is the firm but understanding Prime Minister of Japan who initiated the Kiryu program as Minister of Science and Technology. Second Lieutenant Susumu Hayama, a distrustful and angry JXSDF officer, joins the Kiryu squadron but frequently berates Akane for getting her team killed. The kaiju and human plotlines are mostly unified. The characters have minor personal subplots connected to the monsters. Otherwise, they battle, study, and or control the kaiju. Godzilla is the problem throughout the film, although Kiryu becomes one briefly. The JSDF frequently attacks Godzilla with tanks, fighter jets, maser cannons, and rockets, all of which fail to stop him. With three AC-3 white herons for support, Kiryu battles Godzilla but goes berserk when it hears him roar. Godzilla retreats, and after destroying one white heron and attacking the city for an hour, it shuts down after exhausting his power. It's reprogrammed to prevent this from happening again. The problem is solved when Kiryu battles Godzilla a second time. Akane pilots Kiryu and flies Godzilla out to sea, crashing into the ocean and shooting him point-blank with the absolute zero cannon. The wounded Godzilla breaks free from the ice and retreats. The script by Wataru Mimura is more complex than previous Millennium series films, but still simpler than most Heisei Godzilla films. The cast is larger and the story has more subplots. With a budget of 1 billion yen, roughly $8.5 million, 
Special effects were directed by Yuichi Kikuchi, who employed less CGI and more practical effects than in previous Millennium Series films. CGI was mostly limited to missiles and some shots of Kiryu flying, although it was also employed to recreate the original Godzilla's death scene from the 1954 classic. Tsutomo Tom Kitagawa once again played Godzilla, wearing a new suit that resembled the previous one he wore, though with a few changes. The new Mecha Godzilla was given a sleek design that integrated elements from both the Showa and Heisei versions. Overall, the miniature work is solid. The film has a light tone, but the characters deal with serious issues that add gravity to the story. Despite heavy science fiction trappings, the implied supernatural elements make it a fantasy film. Creating the new Mecha Godzilla that included biological components cloned from the original Godzilla was an intriguing idea that helped set it apart from the Mecha Kaiju's previous incarnations. Unfortunately, this concept goes largely unexplored and Mechagodzilla becomes just another robot. The film reinforces the style of 1974's Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla by featuring Godzilla's robot double as his foe. It also reinforces the style of Godzilla vs. Mechagirus with his female protagonist, similar story, and military focus. After the radically experimental GMK, Toho decided to return to form by having director Masaki Tezuka and his creative team helm the next G film. They revived another classic Godzilla foe in the hopes of appealing to longtime kaiju fans. It was intended to be a safe film that would turn a guaranteed profit. The film was released in Japan December 13, 2002, earning 1.91 billion yen, about $16 million, and selling 1.7 million tickets. This made it the second highest grossing film in the Millennium series. It was released on DVD in the United States by TriStar in 2004 and on Blu-ray in 2014. It is generally liked by fans. There are multiple forces at play. The Anti-Megalosaurus Force, or AMF, is a division of the JSDF formed to combat Kaiju. This is later replaced by the JXSDF. Kiryu's biotechnology infuses it with the original Godzilla's soul, which makes it temporarily defy its creators. This prompts Sara to say that Kiryu is a living being with a right to life while everyone else sees it as just a malfunctioning weapon. Akane is plagued by survivor's guilt after getting her teammates killed by Godzilla. Her mistake is sometimes criticized by her fellow soldiers. Sara is sensitive to matters of life and death after losing her pregnant mother at age four. Self-worth is the most prominent theme, as seen in Akane's character arc. Through her friendship with Sara, she learns her life is meaningful, which compels her to fight harder against Godzilla. Her squad mates, including Hayama, come to respect her as she proves her competence. In turn, Sara comes to grips with her grief and loneliness thanks to Akane. There is an understated sense that living beings shouldn't be exploited as weapons. This concludes part one of the podcast. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. Part two of the podcast will be our opinion and discussion of the film we're covering this week. For me, I wish I liked it more. What about you, Brian? I actually do like it for for the vast majority part of it. Yeah, I'm good. I'm good with this. I know some fans argue that Tezuka's movies got better as they went, but honestly, I still think Megaguirus is better overall. <laughs> I might be in the minority on that. I might agree with you though, but I still really like this. It seems to have a nice sense, it's a clear sense of purpose. I also like the lead actress, and so yeah, she's wonderful. There are a lot of pluses in this movie. So let's start with things that we like. In general, I like the atmosphere that this movie has. It just seems like a movie. It, it has things in it that are cinematic. It, it creates 
moments for the audience to reflect and feel something. And at the same time, we have some pretty awesome battles. It's, I think there's something in it for everybody. If I feel like this is a movie that you can tell that if that a Godzilla fan made it. Oh yeah. And it's something as a, as a fan, I really appreciate it, but I had the same reaction to mega Garrus as well. This, all these Tezuka movies, you can tell that a fan made these and that, that he understood what the fans wanted and understands in general what people like about the Godzilla movies. It's not too simple. I view it as focused. When I was watching it, I felt like it was a little bit more complex compared to a lot of the the previous Millennium movies. It's not Heisei-level complex, but it's still more complex, I think. Yeah, there's, a lot, there's a lot of things thrown in here. A lot of different ideas, because you got character stuff going on, and you have several different ideas that are being thrown in here. Having met Mishiro Oshima myself at G-Fest, I'm going to be a little biased here, but as a music person, I absolutely love the soundtrack to this movie. Yeah, the soundtrack is fantastic. It could be argued that Oshima gets better with every movie that she does. This music enhances the movie so much. It really does. Especially during our tender moments uh-huh. with mm-hmm. Akane and Sara. Like those moments, that music is just perfect. It's It's cinematic it's appropriate it gets us into the mood and her godzilla theme is still epic yeah the drums and everything oh i i love her godzilla theme and the trumpet fanfare it all sounds very impressive extremely appropriate especially the the akane theme the with the trumpet Mm -hmm. going going nice and high on the trumpet it's it's a 21 14 into the movie and if you have the soundtrack which i do you can is that the one you had signed by her i believe so yeah (laughs) and she there's a there are two tracks on there that contain the akane's theme and but it's just amazing one of the things that's really cool is i think i remember hearing her talk about this at g fest is we're talking we talked about her godzilla theme when you 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 said that she didn't listen to any of the previous music because she didn't want to be colored by it, but the the direction she was given, if I remember correctly, to for making this Godzilla theme was she was just told make it sound big, because it's for Godzilla. She just make it sound big, and she definitely succeeded at that. Definitely, also without overdoing it. Yes, even the little music when the kids are walking to <laughs> down the street. Yeah. Like they just got off of school and then there's a little flute. Yeah. <laughs> going and has any music like that ever been in a Godzilla movie? I can't think of any, not like that uh, anyway. Yeah, Like somebody actually wrote a track just for a, a tiny little scene like that. And it's just little strings and flute going. And, and I thought, wow, this is nice. They, they made a whole little, selection of music for this little they couldn't they didn't have to have that in there no (laughs) in in the movie at all that scene but it kind of normalizes the movie and the story to have something like that because that's you may as well have a narrator being like and one average day and this really illustrates the importance of soundtracks in films especially since I know a lot of people in the last five years in particular, at least with American films, have been complaining that movie soundtracks have not really been up to snuff for a while. 
So the fact that she's able to make such memorable soundtracks for these films is a great achievement. Besides Akane's theme, I really love the Akane character, and I love Yukimo Shaku as her. Her character desires redemption more than she desires revenge. That Which is a nice be, difference. That might be part of it. But, And I'm glad that that was the angle that they took, because I have to admit... At the start, I was because it's been a, before we before I watched this for the podcast. It had been a while since I had seen this one, and I was a little bit concerned that it was going to be a rehash of Megagirus because it starts off a lot like Megagirus. But thankfully, they go off in a different direction with her, where it's not about revenge, as you said, it's about redemption. Even though in Megagirus, she <laughs> that character it, she screws up too. And gets people killed, but she blames it on Godzilla. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's just that dark Godzilla. <laughs> and in this movie, she 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 doesn't blame it all on Godzilla. And she and takes it on herself. <laughs> she, she accepts responsibility, and and so it doesn't become a revenge story. Her character also functions as a as a sort of emotional pick me up. By the time you get to the end of her character arc, at the end of the movie, it, you sort of feel uplifted a little bit by her experience. Mm-hmm. Says, she did it, I can do it too, <laughs> whatever. As, mm-hmm. as, I don't know, as hackneyed as that sounds, I've, I feel optimistic at the end of the movie. I think the little girl certainly felt like that. The audience should feel optimistic at the end. It ends on a nice high note. At the first, the first time I saw this, I was happy at the end. I was like, yeah, I really like this. Good. Mm-hmm. We get this very nice, wonderful flashback scene the scene with kumi mizuno and akira nakao mm-hmm. as prime minister and minister of science and technology at the time and then he becomes prime minister later but another, a, another millennium trademark bringing back one of the showa era actors yes and she's awesome as the prime minister in this but the, this flashback scene though is great it shows clips from the previous monster attacks and it's almost like saying explicitly we don't care about all of these other movies in a continuity way. We're just hearkening back to other monster attacks that have occurred, and we get to pick which ones. Because that way we don't have to like put all of the monsters into it and make it 10 minutes long. Yeah, I they selected uh, three Showa-era films. It was the original Godzilla, it was the original Mothra, and War of the Gargantuas. Which Kumi one. Mizuno was in. Mm-hmm. And so it makes sense for her to be recalling some of those things. But it's it's a very effective scene. It sets up a lot of things. It's almost like Tezuka is trying to make a surrogate Showa-era film. Yeah. The purpose of this flashback scene is to say about how vulnerable Japan is. They could be annihilated by Godzilla and have no way to defend themselves. It is a good way to get across the point about their helplessness. Japan at this point also had the JSDF, and while the JSDF does have power, in reality, Japan cannot defend itself with just that, including their ability to be under the U.S. nuclear umbrella, which is another method of defense. This taps into Japan's situation, and it creates a need to create Mechagodzilla in the first place, rather than just, oh, we invented this. At the very beginning of the movie, like our previous one uh, in uh, 1993, with this, they hadn't built it yet. 
And so then they present the actual need for why to invent Kiryu. But he's also a giant super weapon. So that would be fulfilling the need for Japan to get enough firepower for defense. But this, as you can see in the movie, caused controversy as far as budget and as far as does this violate our constitution? Which I really appreciated seeing. Yeah, they actually explicitly say, is this the rearmament of Japan? Uh-huh. In that great scene where they have all the reporters and press all around her, and they're like jostling her practically as she's trying to get down the stairs. You need scenes like this in Godzilla movies. Just like in GMK, for instance, when they had the big press conferences about, oh, here's Godzilla. You want to have scenes like this in, in Godzilla. They're so appropriate. And it, it presents us with some sort of meat to the story. There's some reference to current events. And it all meshes together very well. One of the things I really enjoy in this movie is you mentioned Tezuka is obviously a fanboy. And you can see it throughout this movie. There are lots of homages and callbacks to the, the Showa era films. Uh, we've mentioned a few of them already, but you, know, you have stuff like they recreate Godzilla's death scene from the 1954 film. They use CGI to do it, which is, I will admit, is a little bit odd at first, but you, know, you get used to it. But I think one of my favorite homages is about five minutes in when they have the, the Mazer attack, which seemed like Tezuka was trying very hard to recreate the the Mazer attack that was in War of the Gargantuas, and then it gets recycled a whole bunch as stock footage in some of the '70s Godzilla movies. And speaking of Mazers, uh, they bring he brings back a lot of the Showa era military tech in this one too. It's a it's a little bit more fantastic. We have the Mazer cannons again, most notably. The technology used in Mechagodzilla is certainly more advanced than uh, anything we've seen in most of these previous movies, and we don't have any explanation about where this technology comes from other than, oh, it's just stuff that we have. It's not like... Thank goodness. Yeah, it's not just it's not like the, the 90s version where they made it using salvaged future tech. Or take a whole scene describing it. But yeah. The, <laughs> there are a couple scenes about the technology where it's demonstrated, and the technology demonstration scenes in this are good, too. It gets the point across and has that whole room full of uh, scientists and experts and they all stand up and get really shocked at the absolute zero cannon and how powerful it is. <laughs> That's a great weapon. It's not black hole gun ridiculous, but it's still it's kind of up there. But I still but I really like it. The guy that invented the absolute zero gun, he looks totally perfect for the part. <laughs> He's great. Yeah. Our prime minister, our second prime minister, uh, played by Akira Nakao, Igarashi is really good. He's He was also in Mechagodzilla 2. I thought he looked familiar. Yes, uh, and then he was also in uh, Godzilla vs. Destroyer. It establishes a nice little bit of continuity with the Showa series, sort of not really explicitly having all this stuff in there, but just bringing back that kind of a world as opposed to just science everything. Did you notice that Shin Takuma was back? He's the majority of the comic relief. Sarah's Sarah's dad. Ah, oh, yes, that guy. <laughs> and he was in Godzilla 1985. Ah. <laughs> also the little girl's dad from Godzilla 2000. He was the guy that was picking up cans mm -hmm. at the beginning of the movie. And I recognized him. Yeah, I did too. Speaking of 
the dad in uh, Godzilla 2000, we have another little girl in this Godzilla movie. And thankfully, she is not weird. <laughs> yes, we, we don't have a creepy little girl this time. She's she's a little affected. Yeah, who's uh, but, uh, uh, no. we don't have a little girl who's way too smart for her age and acting like an adult when she shouldn't be. <laughs> and constantly putting herself in danger. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, I like her in this one. It's yeah, not often good. it's not often you find good child actors and she's actually pretty decent in this. This is literally the only thing that she's been in. Oh, it is. Uh-huh. Uh, same thing with the girl from 2000. That's about the only thing she was ever into. <laughs> the the scene you were talking about when we were talking about the soundtrack uh, with uh, the kids walking home from school. I love that scene because it's it's a wonderful thing with all these kids that are just interacting and it's like uh, Sara gets to Stand there and say, oh, yeah, this is where I live. I live on this base. See, this is really cool. And she just walks up to the guard and he just, he, he you know, says hi to her and she just walks right in. It, it helps to establish that there are normal people in the movie, which sometimes you, you should probably try to do that. And the point is, is that the extraordinary thing is that what is is that she her father is working on kiru kiru and so that's the extraordinary thing the ordinary thing is what all the other kids at least in this movie they're not talking about how there's a part of godzilla in all of us (laughs) or getting all creepy by saying oh well we need to be advocates for him and all, Mm -hmm. all this his life's very important but who whose life is important though kiryu's yeah, and she becomes a huge advocate for for it. Kiryu's him, right to whatever ex- you want to call Kiryu's it. Yeah. right to exist. Yeah, etc. Because it has a soul, mm-hmm. and in, that, in, in in a very rough way of yeah, and that plays into uh, her struggle because she's she's still grieving the loss of her mother. Mm-hmm. She has a hard time dealing with matters of life and death. Because of that. And that's why she carries that little plant with her yeah. all the time. It's almost like a security blanket, I guess, in some ways. <laughs> yeah. But it also works, I think, as a bit of a a metaphor for Akane. Because she, she they talk about how the plant that she has always recoils whenever somebody tries to touch it. Yeah, that's... And I think that, well, not, not only works for Akane, it works for Sarah as yeah. well. Yep. So... So it's a nice visual metaphor without it being hammered into us like it would be in a Heisei movie. <laughs> or just if it was a Heisei movie, it would just be mentioned with like 50 other things that we'd have to wade through in order to get to the actual message. Which this movie's not simple. It's just nice and focused. Yeah. It, it's, the story's easy to understand. It's it's not like it's, I don't feel like this movie's treating us like we're stupid, though. No, but I do have one question uh, related to her, do you think it was a little bit of a stretch that she would be, even if her dad is working at this base, that she would be led into their little control room where the robot and such is? I mean, it's not Gamera, old school Gamera level ridiculous, but like, you know, because with the military consulting with the kids or whatever, but still she's allowed in there. I don't know. It didn't really affect me much from that direction. Right after the titles, we get our victim scene. Yes. Very early on. It's our earliest victim scene ever. It gets us some gravity right at the beginning. The human toll of Godzilla's actions. 
and therefore working also to create more of a need for Kiryu to exist. So again, that, that plays a, a story function by having that scene early on because you want the whole messages, you want to avoid having this happen over and over again. And so you want to put a stop to the problem. And so it creates a nice motivation. I really like how the suits in this movie look, how they're designed with Kiryu as well as Godzilla. I was about to bring that up, actually. The This is my favorite Mechagodzilla design. It's not my favorite Mechagodzilla overall, but it's my favorite design. In my opinion, it's about the, as, as like a the Showa version design, maybe as much as this. It's a really tough call. I like them both a lot. The thing I like about this one is that it includes elements of both the Showa and the Heisei design. So it's it's a little bit more streamlined and a little less angular compared to the other two, which is why I like it. It's kind of a best of both worlds. Yeah, it is. But Godzilla's suit is also great. The Godzilla suit's great. I, I like how it looks, the material it's made of. It looks really convincing. Yes, we we more or less have the return of the original Millennium suit from the first two movies. It's just that a lot of its characteristics have been scaled down a little bit. The dorsal fins are a little less prominent and such, which I and I think the teeth are a little less crocodile-ish. Mm-hmm. But you know, it still looks very much like that suit, which fits in with most of these Millennium movies. They used a fairly similar design with each one, with the exception of GMK. And as has become tradition with any movie featuring Mechagodzilla, we have the, that introductory shot of Mechagodzilla where the camera pans up and shows you the entire mech. Right. And that scene, I think more than any other one that I've seen in these movies, really feels like Pacific Rim <laughs> to me. Low with the Jaegers. Yeah. Yeah. Del Toro uh, definitely saw these Millennium movies, and I I would almost bet money he was a huge fan of these Tezuka films in particular, partic- especially with this one. Mm-hmm. Also, did you notice during that, uh, during that sequence they had the Star Trek phaser sound effect? I did not notice that. Yeah, it's it was in Ooh. there. I forget what it was being used for, but it was in there. Interesting. <laughs> I always notice when those sound effects get recycled. Hmm. I also really like the name Kiryu. They alternate between calling the machine Mechagodzilla or Kiryu. I actually prefer the name Kiryu in this. I looked it up. It actually means metal dragon. Right, so it actually makes sense. Mm-hmm. But when I first saw it, I didn't really care for it but now i like the name it, it grew on me the more i saw the movie it also makes it easier for me to identify which one i'll just say kiryu as opposed to millennium mechagodzilla or something mechagodzilla like that. 3 or mechagodzilla 3 yeah silly things like that the climactic monster battle in this also feels more like a showa film it's a little more exaggerated a little bit more sumo Physical. Uh-huh. A little more physical. Yeah, not even just though, beams all the time. Yeah, even though Mechagodzilla has got a giant futuristic arsenal at his disposal. <laughs> so I really uh, I really like that. I especially like how it starts when uh, Kiryu makes his little heroic shoulder tackle. <laughs> yeah. He just pops right in and just shoves him out of the way. Very, almost a superhero-ish sort of move 
to make. But then it gets really crazy once Kiryu throws off that jetpack and he's not as encumbered anymore. And then he can really just go crazy. Yeah, and, it's, and the punching and everything. It, mm-hmm. it works. It, it calls back to the show era. And it's fun. It's a fun battle to watch. And it's engaging. And it's choreographed well. And there aren't three monsters in it that you have to awkwardly work you know between them and stuff it makes a lot of coherent sense in your mind watching this battle and the music's fantastic during that Mm -hmm. and then it ends in great traditional godzilla fashion with a falling into the ocean moment (laughs) well being a catapulted or whatever into the ocean yeah yeah we 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 cool godzilla off in the ocean again in order to end the battle yeah and then he's tired and retreats on us (laughs) It is so, that it calls back to all those falling into the ocean times too. Yeah. Well, so at least it's different. <laughs> well, the, <laughs> it, they the, fall in and freeze. Yeah. And then this huge tower of ice just pops out of there, which I also like it, it, that looks good. And it's a, it's a great way to neutralize Godzilla at least, or at least to make him go away. Something I really appreciate is there's a scene where Hayama is criticizing Akane And then their commander comes in and says, you need to shut up because you're undermining our teamwork. And then by extension, you're undermining this entire operation because the way the military functions is that everybody has to be on the same page and they have to minimize conflict within themselves, within with each other in order to accomplish their mission. Right. It's because it's about the mission. What is also maybe coming through here is the importance of consensus not only just in a military way but in a japanese way in in that japanese culture is quite a bit more consensus driven than like we are and so that part of that might be coming through as well and just the need for to have everybody in line and doing the best job that they can and if necessary they have to save each other which is exactly what happens also i really like the jxsdf hats those are some really cool logos I wouldn't mind having one. You you can get them. I've saw some people selling them on eBay for thirty bucks a pop. It's nice. It, it's a nice design, and it's also something you want to do in a Godzilla film, just like in Megaguirus. They have with, with the the cool jackets. The, yeah, the jackets and the emblems and the it's it's official. You want to make it official, and and it feels it feels more real. It feels more like a Godzilla movie. Although I have to admit, the name of that organization is a little bit weird it's the japanese xenomorph self-defense force when i hear xenomorph i think alien not godzilla right i don't it it sort of makes sense but not i don't know i could take it i can take that or leave it (laughs) yeah we had a cameo by another godzilla in this movie yes hideki matsui the baseball player yes his nickname is godzilla yeah, I originally thought it was because he was tall, but you found out it's because he skin uh, a skin problem. Uh-huh. But now it's because he can hit really hard. <laughs> right, he later became known for that. But he and he was with the uh, the Yomiuri Giants team in uh, Japan before he came to the United States. But he was with uh, I think five or so um MLB teams in the US and I I remember him being with the Yankees. Yes. In fact, the the team he played for in Japan was considered to be the, the New York Yankees of Japan, right? Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
So it's a fun little cameo to throw in there. It's a nice little reference without, again, making it obvious because nobody calls him Godzilla. He's just there. It's a good pop culture reference. It makes sense because of his nickname, but also because baseball is a pretty big deal in Japan. And so it's it's getting a little bit of pop culture into the Godzilla world. But it, it's, it you have to show the world around you in the in these movies. Because if you just show our main characters all the time doing stuff, it gets a little blah. You want you want to have your hospital scene, you want to have your evacuation scene, you want to have some of these things lined up. You you want to have sort of like this reminds me this scene with Matsui it reminded me of the pop concert scene in uh Bilante. Yes. Where she starts <laughs> singing and then She's like, oh, bye, everybody. We got to go. It, it was a little thing with the, this part with Matsui, but it, it fit and it, it added to the, the general feel of the movie. How much would you bet that our Cubs-loving roboticist from Megagiris loves this guy? Probably his favorite baseball player. Might be, even though, it's a, even though he was with the Yankees. <laughs> he was a Cubs fan. Yeah. <laughs> and as a Cubs fan, we, we just uh, very recently, uh, uh, Hugh Darvish joined the Chicago Cubs, mm-hmm. which is a, no, another really big Japanese player. All right, Brian, since we've had such fun talking about this before, are you happy that we're now back to 88 minutes? <laughs> this movie does not seem long, but it also doesn't seem short. It's, I, I believe it's the optimum length. Like, 90 minutes, give or take maybe 10 minutes on each side. But if you go past that, unless you have a whole enough material to to take up that extra time, then you shouldn't do that extra time. This movie doesn't seem weighted down by stuff that is extra. There's not much extra stuff in this movie that I would cut, really. Because you want to be able to tie up your story nice and well. And this this movie does do that. But it, at the same time, it doesn't it doesn't seem like we have all of these just long, talky scenes where they just talk about Godzilla all day long. Well, next, let's move to uh, stuff that we didn't like so much. Like I said at the beginning, this is this is a Godzilla movie. I wish I could like more. I really, really do. <laughs> but. Every time I watch it, I keep going back to how I still feel like Mechagirus is better overall. I mean, there are some things that this does get better, but... <sighs> well, I, you're not alone in that. I like Mechagirus more, I think. It's tough, though. It, it's, yeah. it's closer, maybe, for me than for you, between the two of them. Yeah, it's just... For one thing, it, it, and I've, I think I've mentioned this to you before, is... There are certain aspects of this and Megagirus that I keep getting mixed up with each other because there are, especially at the beginning, there are a lot of similarities here. It, it's Very. easy for me to get them mixed up. They both start off with flashbacks. I have heavy military involvement. The military is engaging Godzilla. Our main character is a woman who is fighting alongside all these men to try to take him out and then... She's the only survivor, and all of her teammates die. And all, it's it, they start off so well, similar. And both the, movies start and end with the military. Yes, essentially. Yes, it, but it's mostly at the beginning where I get stuff confused. 
it might be in part, like I said, because I haven't watched these movies enough to keep them separate in my own head. I've but, watched these movies so many times I could replay them in my head. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's also not helped by the fact that it's the same screenwriter. And I don't know, maybe I'm just being too harsh on this. It's not like when we, when we were talking about Sekizawa, we all knew that Sekizawa had certain things that he would do a lot. And he has certain, you know, character archetypes and conventions that he would use, but I never seemed to be bothered by those as I much as much as I was this time around. Sekizawa knew more about how to reinvent and and turn the formulas around. Which is why I will like I've said before, I will give them credit. They go in a completely different direction once you get past that opening, where it becomes not a revenge story, it becomes a redemption story. So yeah, Kudos that dif- there. Yeah, uh, yeah, that difference is stark. Yeah. yeah, that's that's probably the starkest difference between this and that one. But again, if I was sitting in a theater and watching this, my first thought would have been, didn't I watch this movie two years ago? With Megaguirus, it's the tough woman yes. who wants revenge. And then and this one is the sensitive woman who wants redemption. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, like I said, that's where it veers off in another direction, which, again, I'm very grateful for question though do you like which one do you like better this or mechagodzilla 2 overall this one but me too but as i will but as i will mention later well this i do think is a better film at least in the mecha and mechagodzilla 2 it wasn't it wasn't presenting some really intriguing ideas and then not doing anything with them that one it was just super simple it's just like oh here's a giant robot and then there are things in this one that I wish it had done more with. But overall, this is a better movie. As a movie, this is more cinematic of a movie, yeah. I get what you mean, though, because this is such an intriguing concept of Kiryu going berserk. You could have made the whole rest of that movie, this movie, about Kiryu going berserk. Yeah, the the scene you're talking about is it's about 40 minutes and 20 seconds in. And it's such an amazing idea. The concept of Kiryu having a biological CPU, one that was cloned from the original Godzilla, it was such an intriguing idea. And then you get halfway through the movie, and then that biological CPU's natural instincts reassert themselves when it hears Godzilla's roar. And when Kiryu does that, when it makes a sound, it doesn't even sound mechanical anymore. It actually sounds like the original Godzilla's roar a bit. Yeah. There was so much story potential with that. It's as a writer, when I hear about that, it, it, the, there's so many ideas go through my head about what they could have done. You could have done stuff like the Kiryu could have turned on the humans and then sided with Godzilla. So then they had to fight both of them. Or maybe it goes after Godzilla itself independent of the humans or the the human pilots who were in Kiryu could have been trapped inside and need to be rescued if they really wanted to explore the idea of giving Kiryu this cloned biological CPU I honestly think they missed the mark it just it's almost a footnote in this story you have this wonderful idea that really differentiates it from the two previous versions and then they just they do nothing with it and all they keep asking is why it becomes a cul-de-sac like a story, a story form of a cul-de-sac. Yeah. yeah, because you have five minutes, about five minutes where Kiryu is running around doing whatever it wants. It even takes out one of the herons, mm-hmm. almost kills some of the uh, almost kills those pilots. 
And then it shuts down. And I'm like, okay, fine. If you're just going to let it run around for a little bit, have it shut down, then maybe for the rest of the movie, you're always running the risk that if we turn this thing back on, it's going to do the same thing. They don't even do that. They fix it. And it never happens again for the rest of the movie. I would have at least been a little bit happier if the same thing had happened during the climax. And then that complicated things for everybody. Or they could have at least created the tension that something else could go wrong. And like yes. have the characters be more concerned about the risks. Yeah. But instead, they, they just sort of, they, maybe they solve the problem too quickly. Yeah, they definitely solve the problem too quickly. Because after those five minutes, it's just, it's just another robot. It's just another Mechagodzilla. It just becomes a cooler looking version I hate to say this, but it just becomes a cooler looking version of the 1993 Mechagodzilla. Mm -hmm. It really doesn't have a whole lot of personality. I mean, it certainly has more than that 1993 version, but still, it it doesn't hold a candle to the, the Showa Mechagodzilla in terms of personality. If the idea was they wanted to have something that would make Mechagodzilla fail the first time that they used it, I think they would have been better off coming up with something else. Because that's one thought that went through my head. Maybe that was their thinking. But, but again, you're sitting on too good of an idea. And Sarah even has a line later on where she says, why should it fight Godzilla when they should be friends? And I wrote in my notes, exactly. Even the movie seems to be a little bit aware of this. I can also see what the filmmakers were trying to do. They wanted to use Kiryu as a mirror for Akane, who feels worthless. Her character arc is learning that she has value. But I say again, they missed an opportunity. They could have had this arc for her and utilized this concept. Perhaps a better route, if they really wanted this story, would have been to create a defiant AI instead of a biological CPU. It's just that they had a missed opportunity where they could have made turning Kiryu back to normal. They could have made that a bit more of a struggle. But I get what you mean. Yeah. And this is actually, way back in our first episode, I mentioned that there was a Godzilla movie that inspired a kaiju novella that I co-wrote with a couple of our friends. And it was this movie. Because I remember reading about this in G-Fan, and the the article said this was a missed opportunity. And I thought, well, maybe it's not so bad. And then I watched the movie myself, and then I thought, you know what, I agree with... I agree with them. This was such a wonderful concept. So Destroyer, which is the novella I'm talking about, it takes this concept and talks about it. it's very similar. You have a, you know this giant cyborg with a brain that is a, serves as the CPU, and it was cloned from dinosaur DNA. So we're getting a, probably a little Jurassic Parkish there, and it's unleashed in a city as a, as a weapon of war because this takes place during a futuristic war and then it goes berserk and strands its handlers in the middle of the city and it's running around and the characters are all fighting with each other they're fighting with potential enemies in this city and while also trying to deal with the monster and so i decided my goal was to take this idea and do something with it now i didn't use every possible idea that you could have done but I wanted to do something with this because it would have been, I think, a unique opportunity to do something really different. And instead, they kind of play it safe, which is probably my biggest gripe with this. This feels like such a safe movie. I it, I like what they do in this, but it feels incredibly safe. 
maybe it's because it's coming off of the heels of GMK and GMK was incredibly good. It was incredibly different. It was experimental. It was daring. And this just feels by the numbers by comparison. Yeah. The studio probably wanted to play it safe and make sure that they, that they got a return right now in American movies, a lot, almost the name of the game is playing it safe. I feel like some movies that come out in franchises now, it's like the financial advisors in the studio were the ones that figured out what to do. Remember back in our Bialante episode when you uh, you said you didn't like the the thing at the beginning of the movie when it's talking about the alert system? Yeah, the text scrolling across the computer screen. Yeah, mm-hmm. we have that kind of again. We have text exposition that pops up during the opening sequence that just tells us things. It's not even the characters talking. It's just the text popping up in the middle of the scene, just saying like, oh, yeah, uh, this happened. And then then the anti-megalosaurus force, which sounds incredibly ridiculous, it was formed in this year. And then they went and all did all this stuff while we're watching a military operation. And I'm thinking you couldn't make this dialogue. Is that how you saved yourself a couple extra minutes to keep it under 90 minutes? You just put the text up on the screen? I mean, it's not like Shin Godzilla where it's just telling us all the character names and where they are. It's giving us actual information in the middle of the scene, just as text, not a narrator or anything. I would not want a narrator, but I also would not want extra dialogue just to get the point across because you're going to be using more time than you need. It might have just been an effort to just not have to edit so much or keep adding stuff that the audience wouldn't find interesting. My next criticism, I know it might sound like a nitpick. I don't understand why Godzilla will actually flinch and react when he's being attacked by the military. But then there are a couple of instances where he just stands there and takes shots from Kiryu and does nothing. Oh, so it's a little inconsistent, you mean? Yeah, it mm-hmm. just didn't make any sense to me because the the first time that he meets Kiryu and Kiryu bombards him with missiles, he just stands there, does mm-hmm. nothing. Yeah. No reaction whatsoever. He's just dead. Why aren't you doing anything? Mm-hmm. I mean, react. Dang it. React. Where are you, Kitagawa? Mm-hmm. Act. <laughs> mm-hmm. Do something. Why would you just stand there? I don't understand. I mean, even if it's not technically hurting him, do something. Don't just stand there. But like I said, that's just early on. He reacts to being attacked by the military. And then during the second battle with Kiryu, he reacts to getting hit. So th- there's there's no consistency, as you said. And once again, because this is a Tezuka film, we have a stinger, a post credit scene. I have to admit, I've gotten used to waiting through the credits because Marvel movies have ruined me. <laughs> this one, however, I don't. I, I, thought, I thought it was a poor decision to have this scene be at the end of the credits. Because usually when you have a scene at the end of the credits, it's to tease on the other movie or it's a nice little bonus the, you know, it's a nice little cherry on top, like in Megagirus. We it's a reward for the audience. Yeah, yeah. like in Megagirus. We didn't need that scene necessarily, but it was nice to have it. That was fine. Before the credits rolled in this, I didn't feel any closure. I felt unsatisfied. And then you got to the end of the credits and you get that you get that next scene. And then I had closure. That should have been the final scene of the movie before the credits roll. Right, so the story shouldn't end in that kind of a scene after the credits. Yeah. Yeah. So it's I think it's still it, part of the story 
proper. Yeah. And I, so I think it was a poor choice on Tezuka's part to structure it that way. Because I think ending it with her saluting Kiryu and then cutting to the credits would have made a lot of sense. Probably. But I'm guessing he just he really likes having Stinger, so he had to he just move that over there. Oh well, there are worse there are worse things that he could have done. Next we can do stuff that we uh, thought was funny or either in a laughing with or a laughing at sense of the word. But as far as laughing with, I really like Shin Takuma and, and his comedy relief, comic relief uh, role as Sara's father. His, that one line that we were talking <laughs> about before recording. <laughs> Would you like to have kids? <laughs> I wrote terrible pickup line, dude. Yeah, terrible. Worst one ever. (laughs) Well, it's definitely in the top 10. (laughs) You don't just walk up to some woman and ask her to have children. (laughs) He reminds me of Frankie Sakai from the original Mothra. I I liked him better than this by a little bit, but it's, it's a similar kind of character. Yeah. In fact, if... Frankie Sakai was still around and it was it was young enough I would have said have him play the part <laughs> he could have pulled that scene off pretty well I think I enjoyed how during a couple of the scenes with Sara and Akane that he's there but Akane like totally ignores him <laughs> yeah like, I swear she rolled her eyes one time too but and like but she was in a conversation with Sara and he would say something and then she'd be she wouldn't even acknowledge him and then she just keep talking to Sarah. <laughs> I thought that was good. Yeah. Do you? Think- She's like, whatever, dude. I mean, I'm talking to her. <laughs> I like to think that, at least in my head canon, that you know they did actually get together because they look like they would be in a, a pretty decent couple. And poor Sarah needs a needs a new mom. <laughs> Thankfully, we didn't get like a wedding scene at the end or some <laughs> obvious thing that they're going to smack us over the head with. Yeah. But it, it does imply that it, something might go somewhere. Yeah. Something that I, I I think it was intended to be funny, but I do kind of laugh at it a little bit, but it's mostly because I, it's something that we've all seen and we kind of laugh and I kind of laugh at those. Uh, I kind of laugh at these in real life too. And that is uh, the beginning of the movie. We have these reporters who are out in the middle of a typhoon and it's all rainy and windy and they're, saying yeah it's it's rainy and windy and i keep thinking of these weather channel guys who whenever there's a hurricane coming to florida they stand out there and said yeah look it's rainy and windy like yeah we get it (laughs) jim cantori yeah it's like do do, we we know what a hurricane is you don't need to stand out there risk your life and prove that it's rainy and windy (laughs) but we do though because there are people at home that they they want to see that they want to know what it's like because it's such an extraordinary event. And so instead of going out themselves, they're content to stay in and watch others. But th- thankfully, it wasn't like Geraldo Rivera who got knocked over by the waves and stuff. <laughs> no, this guy got almost got knocked over by Godzilla. That was that was the part where it was a little bit funny, where you know, these guys are standing out there and they're talking about the typhoon and then Godzilla, the living natural disaster, appears behind them. <laughs> Which, that might be a nod to the original Mothra versus Godzilla with the typhoon. That's true. That is true. Yeah. It's it's not a in-your-face sort of reference, like where it has Godzilla coming out of the sand again or something like that. But it's a nice callback slash reference without without being too 
ridiculous in your level of um, <laughs> referencing. Yeah, but again, also the typhoons are frequent occurrences in Japan, so it, it was something they would recognize. And it's a good way to introduce Godzilla is under the cover of a typhoon. Mm-hmm. We've been talking a lot about Akane, and there's actually more that we could say, which we're going to do now in part three. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. In part three of the podcast, we uh, discuss issues that were either brought up by the film directly or were going on in Japan at the time the film was released. And for this, we uh, are doing women in the Godzilla movies and the firing of Makiko Tanaka. Makiko Tanaka was the first female foreign minister of Japan. But first, we're going to do women in the Godzilla movies. This is our third uh, female main character in a row in uh, the Godzilla series. So now yeah. is a good time to talk about this. Mm-hmm. In general, women are, well, underrepresented compared to men in the Godzilla movies. That's for sure. Yeah. It's, it's a bit unfortunate, but yeah. <laughs> but we've had more of a, more emphasis, at least in this century compared to the previous one. Yeah, which has been a, a nice change because I don't think, unless you want to count Mickey Sagusa on rare occasions, none of the women who've been in these movies have been primary characters. They've usually been supporting characters. Maybe the best woman character, which is it's hard to just declare one woman character in these in this whole series as the best one, but it, uh, obviously the 1954 film, Emiko with Emiko is such a, an important role and, and she plays a love interest, but it's a little bit more than that. Yeah. She, she makes some very serious contributions to the story. And she also has her own arc going on because she's forced into predicament. She has to choose between the two men that she loves. And she also is trusted with a secret that she has to choose whether or not to reveal or not because she's been entrusted with it, but revealing it may do a greater good for everyone involved. Could save Japan. Yeah, she's given the responsibility of, the, of having that information and figuring out what to do with it. Mm-hmm. So that's important in that she's not just the love interest because w- when you have a woman character, you, you at least the hope is, is that if the story works right with with things, then you can get a female character that is not just some kind of stereotype, mm-hmm. like a love interest or just devoted girlfriend, mm-hmm. um, nurturing motherly character, those kinds of things, which Godzilla does. These Godzilla movies do have some of that going on mm-hmm. where there's a little bit of stereotypical uh, characteristics going on, but it's, so it's best when you want to, to more try to break out of those simple constructs. Mm-hmm. And I would argue that Emiko is one of several examples I can think of where you have female characters who make, they make a key decision in the course of the story that if they hadn't made that decision, then things would have been much different. Maybe even just ended the movie right there. Emiko revealing the oxygen destroyer propels the rest of the movie forward. It may have, never been revealed otherwise instead of going from one movie to the next movie to the next movie it's more interesting really to to go between all the various types 
of characters that that women play in the Godzilla series. So we have a, a number of different types. We have the the nurturing role. We have the military woman role, or sometimes the uh, an, or otherwise strong physical woman. Uh, we have the the island girl mm-hmm. type. We have the reporter slash photographer mm-hmm. type. We have the psychical type, which I would throw Mickey Sagusa and the Shobajin into that category. Mm-hmm. There's also the the mother or child role, and and occasionally we have politicians, like we did in this one, and those along with scientist, prime minister, android, uh, or a genuine love interest. Those are the the more atypical roles. I threw really all of those into one category, which is the non-typical roles. One of the types that we have is definitely the nurturing uh, role. And that would be seen in the 1993 film, um, Mechagodzilla 2. Yeah, with uh, Azusa. Yes, who who acts as as a very motherly figure to uh, Baby. Baby Godzilla, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah. She, uh, she takes on that role and becomes his advocate. She's very maternal. At that point, we also have that in the other movies that have baby in them. In the 1994 film, there's also a connection between Mickey Sagusa and baby. Yeah, it's not as strong as it is with Azusa or as prominent, but I do think it's there. I'd also classify the, the 2002 film that we're talking about now as a, a possible mm, nurturing role between Akane and Sara. I could see that. Because they do help each other. Yeah, they, they relate to each other, and it's maybe not like a nurturing mother-daughter connection necessarily, but there's still an emotional connection there. And it's not really a stereotypical situation, though. They're not like, oh, a baby, I must take care of it. It's not really that vibe. You get a little bit of that with, with Kiriko, too, in Megagiris, when she's interacting with the boy. Yes. She's very kind to him because mm-hmm. it, 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 and it's this whole other side of her. We're used to seeing her as angry and vengeful. But when she's with mm-hmm. when she's with that kid, she becomes it's a whole other side to her. Yeah. And so we were able to make her character a better character by showing that side of her. Next, we have the military type, and that would be uh, definitely Megagiris. Yeah, with Kiriko. Yeah. And she's a uh, very... She's the tough one. Yes. And then in the 2002 film that we're doing today with Akane, mm-hmm. uh, that's a, a strong character too. Mm-hmm. But it's in a only dealing with different things mm-hmm. in her life. Yeah, redemption as opposed to revenge. And these roles are important because it, not only is it kind of a, a uh, it's almost like a commercial for women should join the JSDF. Yeah. <laughs> because that's, there's a big drive towards recruiting women in the JSDF. Yeah, that, there's been a big, uh, big push for that. But it, it's, it's important to have these kinds of characters because it shows, it, it shows women in commanding powerful roles that, that starts happening as soon as the new century happens. We, we get in more uh, central uh, female characters. Mm-hmm. Alongside this, we have the otherwise strong physical woman characters, and that would definitely be in Godzilla versus Gigan. Mm-hmm. When we had Tomoko, Gengo's girlfriend. 
there was one thing that we saw about how this is a role reversal between the man and the woman where, where the woman is the one who knows martial arts and she's the one protecting her boyfriend mm-hmm. with her physical prowess. And the, and that's an, a good way to switch things around in, in a movie. Other than playing the enemies, the, Godzilla versus Gigan stands out as having a very, very powerful woman character who's physically, I mean, powerful. And that's really the first time we deal with a character like that. It's, yeah, that's a woman I, with physical prowess. Yeah, that I can think of. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She's also very independent. Mm-hmm. Even though she's she has a boyfriend, she still is. A, you can tell that she is a, a pretty independent thinker. Yes, yeah, she is. She's also uh, she's also playful and flirtatious, which was kind of, which was very nice. Yeah, it really fit with the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. That, and the she can going on. And with. she doesn't take crap from from Gengo at all. You know, when she finds the little picture of the monster he had modeled after her, mm-hmm. and she gives him crap for it. Yeah, <laughs> but it's in a very nice sort of way. Mm-hmm. And that really gets to what. A lot of the of women of woman roles, what the goal is a lot of the time is is a woman who is independent, a woman who knows what they want, and and that they're not necessarily afraid to get it, and that goes kind of along with our, our next category, which is photographers or reporters. But it makes me think of the GMK film, uh, because yes. that's. Uh, with Yuri, because that's a big deal. I Yuri is one of my favorites. Uh, female characters in the entire franchise. Mm-hmm. I love her. As I mentioned in the previous episode, what's great about her is that she fits in with the role of the truth-seeking reporter that we've seen several times in the in the Showa era. But when she starts, she's working for a low-budget TV network that makes stuff up or they stage things so they can get ratings. And then she stumbles across something that's real and she's doing real investigative reporting to try to uncover the truth. But she also is is independent. She she asserts a lot of independence, and even in the in the scene where she's at the restaurant, she says how unfair it is and how it sucks to be a woman. And yes, it, that's one of the few times in Godzilla movies where the woman specifically says what her grievances are, and and it's something that everybody can understand is that she doesn't have as much independence as as men do. And I can't help but think that that actually grew out of director Kaneko's experience making the the Gamera trilogy, because the all three of those movies have prominent female protagonists. They are the stars in those movies. There, there can there is a little bit of an argument in the GMK film that Yuri's centrality as a character is undermined towards the end of the film, like maybe the third act, where instead it's her father. Who, who gets the center of the stage. But I wouldn't say that she gets completely sidelined either. Well, she he's doing all of the action parts, which I'm not necessarily sure I would have been able to believe that a character like her would have been able to do. No, because the, you can't have it in the story where she goes into the submarine and does that herself, because then no. that, that wouldn't work. But she also does push her father in a very weird kind of spiritual sense to take action when he's about ready to give up regarding other reporters and, or uh, photographers and, and characters like that would definitely Yuriko Hoshi's two characters mm-hmm. in uh, the two 1964 films, Mothra versus Godzilla and Ghidorah, the three headed monster. Those are, they're more b- sort of boxed in roles. 
where she doesn't get to be all that independent, but at the same time, she fits into the story well, and her acting is very good, and she and her character is play, she plays her character very well. Mm-hmm. And once more in Mothra versus Godzilla, as we discussed in that episode, if she had made the plea that she did to uh, the Shobajin, I'm not sure that Mothra would have intervened on Japan's behalf. But of course, like we said in that episode, though, of course a woman's going to be the one doing that. Mm-hmm. And that's a little bit of a stereotypical stance. But it, it, back then, especially if they had had the man say that, it would have been very out of, very odd. Mm-hmm. That's where you, you have the woman eh, serving more of a stereotypical role, though, in the, in the sort of, I'm the one that has to be the one who cares, therefore I'm going to have to say that line. A similar role to the Eureka Hoshi character's in those two movies would be Kyoko Kagawa's depiction of uh, Mishi Hanamura, who is uh, the photographer who was uh, around uh, Zenchan Fukuda. And yes. Very, very similar roles that mm-hmm. way. Usually acting as a voice of reason for his harebrained schemes. <laughs> There's also the 1999 film. Mm-hmm. With Yuki. Yeah, our, our reporter who has to get dragged out of the building because she wants to report on stuff right there as it's happening. Mm-hmm. And again, working as a bit of a voice of reason. Yeah, she helps the audience sort of express their feelings of, huh? Mm-hmm. And, and all the things that are going on with that dude and his daughter. In the 2004 film, we have another reporter. Mm-hmm. And she's the one who's uh, uncovering the mysteries that uh, regarding the zillions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Anna Otanashi. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's good in that. She was she was revealed, got to reveal things. She got to have a role in that, even though, really, her part is very not, not all that prominent though. No, it's not. Next, we have our women who in the Godzilla movies who have more psychical roles, and that would definitely be any of these movies that have the Shobajin, but yes. also uh, definitely Mickey Sagusa. Yeah, and then uh, in Des- Godzilla versus Destroya, we had uh, Meru, or Mickey's. A little friend and I guess protege because mm-hmm. she's a little bit younger and Mickey's losing her powers. So she's preparing Meru to take over for her. At first, I thought that the Mickey Sagusa character might be a symbol for the, the an ultimate symbol for the sidelined woman character <laughs> just because she doesn't get to do a whole lot, even though sometimes there's a plot point that involves her. She's still a pretty well sidelined character. She doesn't have a big enough of a role. And there are often women who come in anyway, other woman characters and upstage her. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they upstage her, but also her character was never a deep character in the first place. And she sometimes has like the uh, stereotypical woman nurturing love with Godzilla and and or baby Godzilla <laughs> with her fa- you know with her favorite line yeah <laughs> yes yeah, she, she she looks at Godzilla and says Godzilla <laughs> but we've we've read some of this where where it's like why was she not it seems like she was not a very well thought out character it's not a very deep character and what's strange about the Mickey Sagus character is how she doesn't have much of an arc and it's not until the last movie that she actually gets more powers. And it's only, well, the last two movies yeah. when she gets real power. And even then, she kind of doesn't. And then when she does get her powers, 
isn't it because she's trying to to save a man? <laughs> and that's the thing. That I think, gets her I to, think so. Are you talking about in Space Godzilla? Uh huh. When she has the telekinesis, right? Yeah, <laughs> she's trying to save him, and so her brain just works a little bit more because <laughs> she's trying to save him. So I don't know what. I don't know if you're gonna if you're gonna do like a feminist analysis of these movies, <laughs> what you're gonna say about that part. But they they could have had it where by the end of Biolante, by the end of that film, they could have had her fully developed her skills. Mm-hmm. And then the rest of the movies, what could have happened? She could have used those skills, and that's how she would have become more relevant in the story. Mm-hmm. Like we said in in the Godzilla versus Biolante episode. There's a lot of missed potential. There's a lot of potential with the Mickey Sagusa character, but they often didn't follow through on it or, or get anything out of it as much. Yeah, and I do, in retrospect, really wish they had, especially if they decided to make her, for whatever reason, to make her the through-line character. Which is another puzzling yeah, it, choice. Yeah, because when she's in Biolante, she doesn't come across as, oh, this is a character you're going to be seeing a lot. Mm-hmm. It's it's like they just decided that on the fly. <laughs> I sort of wonder if they, if if the producers of all these '90s movies where they said, "Well, we don't, we're not going to have the Shobajin back, but let's have a girl to replace the Shobajin." It's almost like she's a stand-in for the Shobajin. And then they had the Shobajin come back anyway. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's kind of weird. Mm-hmm. But you know, speaking of the Shobajin, you know, you know they've uh, had a very prominent presence throughout these movies. The always associated with Mothra, and uh, they played multiple roles. They've been, they've served as priestesses. They've been a little bit maternal at points as well. Some would say that in most incarnations, the, even though there's two of them, they aren't distinct from each other because they speak in unison and, and such. Uh, but I do know that in the '90s, when Toho made their trilogy of Mothra films, that was something that they they did differently. Uh, they have them in those, but each one of them have dis- much more distinct personalities, and they aren't speaking in unison all of the time. Looking back at the show and movies, though, I-, I wish they had done more with the Shobajin, because sometimes they're just MacGuffins. In Mothra, they definitely were. Yeah. It's just that there's a little bit of missed potential with that, too, maybe. Because some of it is that they're just doing exposition. Mm-hmm. Like, Mothra's thinking this, and we're not sure if this will work out one way or another when they're talking about stuff in the plot. Mm-hmm. So they don't really do as much or they're sometimes just held as hostage. Mm-hmm. Another type of uh, female character that we have in the Godzilla movies is a sort of Island girl, which is exemplified by the Dio character played by Kumi Masuno in a uh, Ebra horror of the deep. Mm-hmm. That is a, a really memorable role. And she, uh, she does have things to do, but it's mostly she's tagging along with the larger group. Yeah, she's uh, she's feisty. She doesn't take crap from the boys. Because of her, the they figure out how to awaken Godzilla because she has the wire with her, mm-hmm. and she knows a little bit about the island, so they know where to go to elude Red Bamboo. And she's also wearing nice clothes, as far as <laughs> she's eye candy. Be, be, yeah, being able to. Uh, um, help out the young men in the audience with uh, their um, fantasies, so to, so to speak. Because, the, the, but there's also an island girl ish in the movie right after that, which is Son of Godzilla with uh, Psycho, who is the doctor's 
uh, professor's daughter. Mm-hmm. But instead of being an island girl, she was sort of forced to become an island girl and wants to escape. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, that at both of these two movies, they uh, it's pretty much the only woman characters that are in either one. And in Son of Godzilla, she's the only woman in the movie. Yeah, that like Son of Godzilla is a sausage fest. Yeah, <laughs> there ever was one. She's like this. She's like what seventeen, eighteen years old yeah. at the time, and, mm-hmm. and is surrounded by men the entire mm-hmm. time. It's weird when the, when there's that dynamic because it's sort of like she's a token. Yeah, woman woman character. A little, yeah, a little bit of a token. I guess Dio is a bit of a token as well, but she contributes, I think, a little bit more to the overall story. I mean, she's also yeah. a link between Infant Island and and the the rest of our male heroes because when one of them gets captured and the, and sent into the the dungeon where they're manufacturing the yellow liquid, they don't think anything of him, but as soon as he mentions that he's friends with Dio, everything changes. Like, oh, you know her? And then they proceed to, you know, uh, trust him, and then he they are, they're able to sabotage the liquid after that. At the same time, just, just because a woman is given something to do in, in the movie, it doesn't mean that women have a, a prominent role in these movies, though, right? Like, there's a difference between these things. Yes, like oh, we as we some, see with Mickey. Yeah, it's most like, definitely. Yeah, and it's and and it's like even when it seems like even when Mickey does have something to do, there still isn't something that happens. It, there's a difference between giving a woman a role in something versus giving women just something to do. There are a number of atypical roles that women in the Godzilla series have had over the years, though, and especially. Kumi Mizuno as Namikawa. Yes. That is, I think, probably one of the most interesting, dynamic, and well-written characters for you know, for women, especially in the in the Showa era. Her character functions really well within the story. It's a, it's a well-drawn out, well-drawn character. Her motivations are very clear, and she's unconventional. She's going against the grain by rebelling against her computer controllers. But she is then sort of punished for that uh, in her death. And But at the same time, just because her character ends up in a bad way at the end, that that doesn't mean that her role is worse or anything. Yeah, and what also makes it interesting is all of the zillion women look exactly alike. So they all look like her, and they're all completely cold they are stripped of any sort of humanity so even though they're 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 all beautiful there's nothing there they're essentially machines so there's a very interesting commentary going on there i think and i think might have been perhaps speaking a little bit to the the cultural norms and expectations that were going on in japan and then we're in the process of changing yeah and it, it it emphasizes how what she does is so unconventional because it's sort of like a dystopia, the zillions. It's kind of like mm-hmm. it's kind of like a dystopia for women, because they're yeah. all they're all the same, and they they don't seem to have much independence. They do everything they're told to do. Mm-hmm. And it's a it's, it's kind of a stylized, extreme version of of what real life is like <laughs> for women. Hey, the phrase "they should be seen, not heard" comes to mind. Right, and so this is that that has a cultural plug in. 
definitely to to the the times that that of what was going on at the time. Which still, a lot of it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a great character, wonderful character. Great character, and she plays the biggest love interest in any of the Godzilla. <laughs> she movies. actually gets to kiss somebody. <laughs> yeah, and it's even not it's even somebody who's not Japanese. Uh-huh. But it's it's a rare for for a Godzilla movie to to have an actual relationship being depicted. Do you think I remember this is something I came across in our reading. Do you think the fact that Namikawa even though she she helps the heroes in the end, the fact that she's more or less playing a villain and it always seems to be these villainous characters, these villainous female characters who are breaking out of the mold, is that supposed to be some sort of Bizarre commentary as well. Some have argued that. I think it depends on the movie because with the with the Keylocks, for instance. Yeah, the Keylock Queen. Yeah, that I don't know how to really go about that. Yeah, she's a woman, but since she's an alien, does that make her a sort of outsider to the cultural norms instead of somebody who breaks away from those? I wouldn't say so. But the thing is, is the Keylock Queen isn't much of a character anyway. She's a bit of a cardboard cutout. Yeah. An evil cardboard cutout who just yeah. happens to be a woman and all, yeah. all the other Keylocks are pretty much women. Yeah. Unless, they, unless they're little, you know, slave men that they have later on in the that one scene that <laughs> they brainwashed. Yeah. But but Namikawa is, is very different when it comes to that. So, because she actually has a character. So, but she's breaking out of the norms to help the heroes. That's what's different. Compared to the Keylock Queen. Mm-hmm. Also, what do you make out of the the, the it's been postulated that the the women in these movies that are the bad characters, so to speak, like Namikawa and the Keylock Queen, is that because they're they're evil characters who happen to be women, that means that they that that them getting killed it, it ends up being punishment for them breaking out of the mold. But that would almost be say, like saying that the movie is trying to reinforce the system of how women are treated, which I don't believe that that's what these movies are trying to do. With Namikawa, it seems more like an illustration of the consequences that could be faced if you step out of line. Not necessarily saying that going against the norms is bad. It's showing that there will be forces that will push against it. And the... And it makes her look more courageous. Yes. Because the, the odds are, are so much against her. No, I don't believe it's a, a punishment for breaking social norms. In a metatextual way, I think. Within the movie, it is. Mm. But again, she's executed by the Zillions, who are very much the villains. Yeah. So they're punishing nonconformity, but they're the bad guys. Yeah. It's not the movie punishing women in general for nonconformity. Another atypical role for women in the Godzilla movies is androids. We have two. We have the one um, American woman from the 1993 film in Mechagodzilla 2. Played by actress Shelley Sweeney. Yeah, and the her scenes, a lot of those scenes were deleted, but the the general context was this, is that this was a social commentary sort of about uh, accepting people who were different. I think that's essentially what it was. But it was about accepting her, and and once it comes out that she's an android, they're like, oh, okay, and and they they totally uh, still treat her like human, but it's a uh, it's sort of Westworldian. Yeah, the the definite best example of and of being an android would be the nineteen seventy five film Katsura, uh, Terror of Mechagodzilla with yeah Katsura. 
she's one of my favorite female characters in all of these movies. She's very complicated. <laughs> but then again, I also just really love that movie. But she gets to play a lot of different sort of roles in that. Uh, she's a victim. She's uh, a self-sacrificial hero in a way. And she's she's interested in a man. And she's interested yeah. in a man. So she's a love interest as well. Mm-hmm. She's a, something of a villain as well. But she... She's a villain who's being manipulated. It's like Namikawa in a way, but it's not quite the same. Because unlike with Namikawa, she wasn't born into a society that made her this way. We see her before she becomes the cyborg, before she's being manipulated by our alien villains. She was innocent. And she's made into a weapon. And that parallels what they do with Titanosaurus who she controls because Titanosaurus was a gentle creature as well. It's being forced into doing something that she wouldn't normally do. Only in her, only in the context of her, it's about her breaking away from that control. Yes. And, and doing what she, what she feels needs to be done. Mm-hmm. She also is, uh, she's also a daughter and is trying to be a voice of reason with her father. She does a lot of different things, wears a lot of different hats. And I think that's, one of the reasons why the fandom really likes that movie and really likes hers because she gets to do a lot of different things. Yeah. She's a very popular character for sure. We also have some women who are uh, doctors slash professors. One of those would be uh, final wars. Yes. <laughs> and she's awesome. She also, she's, she's, goes, she lasts through the whole movie. If I, remember, and, if I remember correctly. Uh, yeah, yes. And she is, uh, she's really good. Rie Kikukawa, she was uh, the UN molecular biologist, uh, Miyuki Otanashi, and uh, she was uh, quite good looking as well. But it, it, that I remember her most for that scene, and where where he's he's uh, he tells her, "Well, I was expecting somebody that looked a little different than you." <laughs> Another doctor character would definitely be uh, Yuriko Hoshi coming back in uh, Megaguris. Right, and she plays Yoshino Yoshizawa. Yes, <laughs> and she's she's got a she's a pretty, she's a pretty well drawn character. Yeah, she's she has motivations, her desire to destroy Godzilla and um, avenge her colleagues who Godzilla killed. Mm-hmm. But also, she's she, so there's a nice backstory there. But also, she gets to play she, she plays a pretty big role in devising the. Dimension Tide weapon, and she's she's given a pretty prominent role. She's also a woman with authority, because everyone defers to her, and she doesn't take crap from any of these whippersnappers. Yeah, she's a she's a pretty central uh, figure in the anti Godzilla forces. Now, there's also a scientist character in uh, Kyoko Manabe in 1968's Destroy All Monsters, mm-hmm. and. Mm, it's a bit besides the fact that she is a scientist, she does play more of a stereotypical role, really, because yeah, she's the sister mm-hmm. of our protagonist, the little sister. Mm-hmm. Yeah, obviously, the scene where he rips off her earrings—that's a—that's a big deal. Yes, and 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 her, I, lo- I love how she she's she sort of plays an evil character for a, a while mm-hmm, when but, she's under mind control. Yeah, where but I love her acting. When she's got that the key lock sense of uh, 
everything that I'm going to do is going to work out fine. And so I'm going to be really <laughs> pompous and have the smile and the, and the attitude, even in the dubbing. Yes, for, th- that comes through. <laughs> the the keylock arrogance. I to talk to the press. You shut up. <laughs> the keylock arrogance. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I like that role. That that was great. And then her the, the part where everybody realizes monsters are going to attack Tokyo, and then she has a big smile on her face. <laughs> but she, that, that was great too. Mm-hmm. I really like that character. Along with that, in 2016's Shin Godzilla, we have a. Not a scientist, but more of a Politician. government government bigwig. You know, she, she's uh, and and also she's the daughter of a prominent political figure, mm-hmm. and so she's she has that going for her. And she has aspirations of becoming president of the United States, but she's very authoritative. Mm-hmm. Not authoritarian, but authoritative. She's also great in that in in the scene where they're talking about the gra- the where they're getting across the gravity of possibly having another nuclear bomb in Japan. Yes. And and she that scene's just great with how she is able to help us uh, put us into that situation. And she's also very good looking and she's she her uh, big brown eyes. <laughs> yes, and, and her English is quite good too. And that and that comes through. And I, even though, like, I think if you're an average person, average American, you probably think that it might be bad. But no, it's actually pretty good. Um, mm-hmm. But but yeah, that's a great that's a great character. We don't really see that kind of a character in the Godzilla movies until we get to that point. Really, a female politician who have well, just a female politician who's the attitude. Yes, the attitude. The, the, definitely the matter of fact American kind of yeah. attitude, mm-hmm. and she she plays it well. Mm-hmm. And because she's not, supposed to be Japanese American. Yeah. And then along those lines, we have a prime minister character in this movie that we're covering mm-hmm. today. It's a small role, but it's Kumi Mizuno. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And she, just like the other show actors that come back for these millennium movies, they, they, they all got pretty good parts. But th- this one's, that was good too. Uh, Kumi Mizuno is just, a lot of people recognized her. And she she was such a big actress in these Godzilla movies during the show, a series that she was in. And it's, it's great to bring her back, but her, her ability to get across to us, the urgency of the situation and how dire, uh, what dire straits Japan is in with regards to the Godzilla threat. And she's, she's great at, at doing the exposition for, for that, as well as her scene with all the reporters getting all, you know, uh, physically bumped around as she's going down the steps and she's, she has that air of, I, I don't care. Uh, I can handle all you people. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's great to, to have that sense of strength. And then also along those lines, going back to the show era, we have princess Salno. Yeah. We, uh, Akiko we, Wakabayashi. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We would be remiss if we didn't talk about her. She also, she fits a couple of different roles. She's a, she's an authority figure. She's a ruler, but she also kind of has the psychical thing going on after the the extraterrestrial presence takes mm-hmm. her over because then she she can predict the future. She has premonitions about the coming of monsters, and she goes around trying to warn people about the uh, about the monsters coming. Even the Shobajin are weirded out by her. That should tell you something. Yeah, she's <laughs> she's the mistress of predicting uh, bad things mm-hmm. for everybody. Yeah. She's the prophet with nothing good to say. <laughs> and everything, and she knows that everything she says is the absolute truth and 
So you're stupid if you don't listen to her. Mm-hmm. And she serves as a as a vessel for the the aliens who have been previously ravaged by Ghidorah. And the, those scenes when she's talking about Ghidorah, because keep in mind, we haven't seen Ghidorah yet. It gr- creates this wonderful atmosphere, this sense of dread. Yeah, There's a huge mm. gravity to when she's talking about Ghidorah. Because when she drops that name and starts talking about him, it's everything kind of stops. Yeah, you could hear a pin drop. Yeah. Um, the other thing that's cool about Akiko Wakabayashi's role as Princess Sano is that, is that we never, we rarely see her in a beautiful presentation. Yeah. At the beginning, we have her in the dress as the princess, but that's jettisoned quite quickly, literally. Mm-hmm. She just jettisoned <laughs> yeah. out of the plane. But, but there's a sort of unexpected female role that occurs where she turns into the prophet and then her clothes get all... Not frumpy? Fr- yeah, frumpy because she traded clothes with the, with a fisherman. With the fisherman, and it's a role. It's it's a bit of a reversal because you wouldn't expect Akiko Wakabayashi to look like that. Yeah, because if you see her and you only live twice, whew, she is a beautiful woman, right? And so that that's a you're you're subverting the expectation, and and it's sort of like Ingrid Bergman in Notorious. Mm-hmm. Or something like that, like where where you where you're uh, subverting the type, you're working against type, and that's important to do with female roles sometimes when it's appropriate. There are two movies though that that really sort of fail on, on most levels, and one of them be Godzilla versus Megalon, because there are no women in it unless you want to count have a, the we Cetopian. Have a, we have a two second long uh, uh, take was, of a woman warrior with and, a, with a knife, and she's like. Grr. doing her yeah, yeah. <laughs> doesn't talk and then we have our the awkward dancers <laughs> yeah then we have our awkward dancers with their outfits and stuff and they don't say anything either nope <laughs> and that, there's no way that you can gloss over that and try to make it look good because there's, there's literally not a single woman that says a word in it <laughs> yeah <laughs> that one fails so hard but then again Godzilla vs. Megalon fails on a lot of levels yeah but then there's also the 2014 Godzilla from the United States with Elizabeth Olsen as Elle Brody, who's the uh, wife. And gosh, she just doesn't get to do much. She's a woman in peril part of the time. And then the other time, the other part of the time, she's like, what, doting, supportive wife character. And mom. <laughs> and mom, yeah. It's just that she gets to witness things. Mm-hmm. This one and Megalon are probably, are perhaps our two weakest ones in the woman department probably uh, he also had the who dies at the beginning and is you know she's, <laughs> uh, she's the woman yeah she's the uh, woman in the refrigerator you know she works as <laughs> yeah. a motivator for his dad <laughs> she what did she say something like i i don't know how excited i could possibly be about a character that lasts three minutes yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, but i guess there, there were a lot of complaints about brian cranston not being used enough either yeah. And I thought, well, if anybody's not used enough, it's definitely Julia Binoche, <laughs> which I really like Julia Binoche as an actress. I think she's awesome. I've seen a lot of stuff with her in it, and, and pretty much everything I've seen her in is good. <laughs> you also had Ken Watanabe's sidekick there. <laughs> oh, she, doesn't, um, she does only a little bit more than the mom. <laughs> yes, she's the one that manage, helps to manage our our favorite uh, slideshow. Yes, the slideshow. <laughs> Monarch and those slideshows, man. Though this doesn't involve actresses, 
I do believe that Mishiro Oshima's con- contribution to the Godzilla series as composer for three of these movies, that's an important contribution. Yes. Because there aren't a lot of women who are on the production, you know, behind the scenes of these movies. No, not at all. And I'm hard-pressed to think of too many female film composers, period, really. Right. And the fact that she gets to be the only woman to compose music for any of these Godzilla movies. And when she applied for the job, didn't they think that she was a man when they looked at her name? And then they were surprised that she was a woman? I wouldn't be surprised. I believe she said that when she uh, visited Mm G-Fest. So who's your favorite female character out of all of these characters in the Godzilla series. Uh, Nami Kawa is definitely high up there. And uh, as I mentioned before, I'm also uh, very fond of Katsura. I know some people would look at Katsura and say she's not a strong character, but she's a very complicated one. Like I mentioned, she gets to do a lot of different things and fill into a lot of different roles. And it's also it should be noted that uh, Katsura is the only female character in any of these movies who was written by a woman. Right, yeah. Which I think explains why she has such a tremendous amount of depth. It's because it was a woman who wrote that screenplay. It's really close for me about about which one is really my favorite, but I'd have to go with Chiharu Niyama as Yuri Tachibana in GMK. I love Yuri, too. Yuri is Yuri, all, all, Yuri's also on my list. Yuri is, like, probably my favorite one. And she's she just... Her delivery is so good. She seems so genuine when she does her lines. She's not just reading her lines. Like she's the absolute opposite of that. And she, she comes across as genuine and yet she's also so very good looking. Yes. And, and it just, it, out of all of the, especially the female protagonists, I, I love our female protagonists from this movie, but also Mega Garris. but the Yuri character is just so cool. She's she a, is. a really cool character. And they they really put a lot of thought and and, and work into making her a really good character. Because if it was the wrong woman, or if it, or if it wasn't somebody who knew how to act as well, the movie would have just failed. Oh yeah, because she holds everything together. Yeah, Yuri's the the keystone of all of this. When I first saw GMK, I was so absolutely blown away by by the movie in general, but also by her specifically because she carries the movie so much of the time. And, and again, she awesome. gets, she gets to play multiple different kinds of roles in this. Cause she's a reporter. She's a daughter. Mm-hmm. She's a friend, yeah, perhaps even a potential love interest. She gets to wear a lot of different hats. She's a very multifaceted character. If you want to write good fiction, cause we, as people are all very multifaceted. We've, play different roles you know we're all sons and daughters we're uh, we're friends we're lovers we're all these different things and having characters who are written like that as well not it helps them seem more real and it also makes them much more interesting namikawa has a great character arc yuri has a fantastically good character arc yes too. it shows that they put work into the part into creating this character it, it that's so important then rather just rather than just having a woman who plays just one role but you, it's more than just giving a woman something to do it, but putting her in the middle of the action making her the driver of the plot and, that, and that's what i really like to see and a female protagonist in a godzilla movie makes a whole lot of sense moving on to our other topic this is about makiko tanaka and her her firing as uh, the first 
a female foreign minister. Um, I'll give you a little bit of background. Her father was a prime minister from 1972 to 1974. He had a lot of scandals, including the Lockheed scandal, and he was he sort of had this uh, almost gang leader kind of image as as a politician. He was he was also in charge of MIDI for a while, uh, and he was in the LDP. He uh, when he was in MIDI, he was under uh, Prime Minister Ikeda. It's funny that the the character that Makumi, that Kumi Mizuno plays in this film, her her name is M- Machiko Tsuge. Hmm. Now. Now the character that, that I mean, then the woman we're talking about now, who was foreign minister, who was fired, was Makiko Tanaka. They, they both had the same initials. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that's anything. Hmm. It's rather interesting. Yes. Hmm. Uh, hmm. And similar sounding names too. Yeah. Hmm. She was definitely a strong personality. Speaking of strong oh, personalities, yes. <laughs> uh, she was known as she was known as a loose cannon. Uh, yeah, <laughs> she she fought with bureaucrats at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs a lot. It really helped to weaken the government of Prime Minister Koizumi as well. It was one of the scandals that he had to deal with. But she was a strong woman. She made uh, seemed to make a lot of enemies. To start with, she complained that she was put in an office as Minister of Foreign Affairs that that she was in inside that there wasn't even a map of the world <laughs> in there, which. We even have that in our office. She's also, there were no foreign language dictionaries and no international newspapers in there. Yeah, so it's, it really hampers her ability to communicate. <laughs> but at the same time, she's not the one who often is making decisions. It's the bureaucrats under her that make the decisions and she executes them. It isn't, as, it strikes me as not as much of a Secretary of State situation in this country, but the, but she, she doesn't answer to the bureaucrats necessarily, but she has to get along with them, and she kind of chose to not get along with them. One of the issues that she had besides that was uh, she supposedly shared documents about private you know, military funds to her son, who was an accountant. Uh-oh. And there was a, <laughs> yeah, there was a small scandal that came out of that. But then also she met with uh, Secretary of State Colin Powell, and she said something about what she said he said about the missile defense program and Colin Powell's people had to come out and say, no, actually he did not say that. And so there was a bit of a gaffe with that. She was called an amateur by the bureaucrats because when you get into government as an appointed position like this, there are bureaucrats who have been there, you know, comparatively forever. And, And they're the ones that, that know the most. And so these were the people that were really running a lot of things. And so she was at, she was constantly at odds with these people. She became incredibly popular because she was criti- always criticizing the conservative old guard in the, in the government, but which was part of what led to all of these scandals. And it went so far as to call the, her underlings, which I'm guessing are those bureaucrats you were talking about, a, quote, nest of devils. <laughs> Strong words. Very, very strong words. Yeah, and her, and a lot of her personality was about speaking truth to power and, and challenging authority. And so that was why she she got so much popularity. Mm-hmm. And she was demanding a thorough just house cleaning with uh, with uh, with the government, just getting all of these guys out as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. In fact, she was so much against the traditional authority that she actually was against 
the prospect of Koizumi visiting the Yasukuni Shrine. Hmm. Now, part of this was that her father, when he was prime minister, he was part of the, he was the prime minister who was in power when Japan reestablished diplomatic relations with China. And so her father was popular in China. And so as a result, she was as well. And so I think her uh, being against Koizumi going to the Yasukuni Shrine had something to do with her popularity in China and her probably not wanting to get into it, I guess, with the Chinese over the Yasukuni Shrine. Like it was, I'm guessing that it was because she didn't want to hamper relations between Japan and China. Another gaffe was is that she was speaking at a political event in Gunma Prefecture, and uh, she was helping a political candidate who wanted to get elected, and she said that she didn't even know his name, and it seemed like she was almost trying to undermine the candidate. And she specifically said, I don't know you, don't touch me. And, and then the candidate turned around and lost. And so that was a, a gaffe on her part. There was also an episode where she leaked comments by the emperor. And that is something that you really don't want to do. It's something that everybody avoids. And then uh, it was because it was about, it was after 9-11 because that was when she uh, came into office was uh, or in the post 9-11 era. It, it was, the emperor was talking about the nation that was suspected of helping Al Qaeda in order to, that to, in order to carry out 9-11. And it, I would, because of the lawsuit that came to light recently regarding the the victims of 9-11 suing the Saudis, I'm assuming it is Saudi Arabia. Probably. But that, that, is a, that was another gaffe that she got into uh, trouble with. Her and her father were from the Niigata prefecture, and uh, that's where the center of popularity was for her father at the time. And he actually, uh, when he was prime minister, he supposedly... Uh, drew in red ink on a map and, and said that's uh, where the high-speed rail line should go from Nagata to Tokyo, and they actually just did that. Oh, wow. <laughs> but, but he was known for pork bell, barrel projects for Nagata, and so he was very popular there. And when uh, she had to be fired by Koizumi, she, uh, a whole bunch of people in Nagata were furious at this. And they were calling into the LDP and into Koizumi and saying, hey, this, is, this was wrong. You shouldn't have done this. And her popularity did, uh, did not really wane. Uh, no, it was at the, about 70% when she was fired, which yeah. rivaled Koizumi. And, and Koizumi was furious about this situation because people were flooding the LDP with all these calls of support for her. And he went off on, on it and said that tears were a woman's most powerful weapon. Yeah. Uh Ouch. Not sure how smart that was. (laughs) No, but he was furious. Oh, I can understand. So, yeah, this was a very interesting situation. She she resigned or slash was fired in late January 2002. And then this movie comes out December 14th, 2002. Mm -hmm. So it's it's in the same year. But when we have that scene in the movie of the power being handed over from Kumi Mizuno's character of the prime minister going over to Akira Nakao's incoming prime minister. She gets the flowers and she gives him the flowers. And then there's the, the thing in the paper 
of the two of them. Mm-hmm. I couldn't help but think there was some sort of oblique reference to this scandal. It wouldn't surprise it was, me. It was heavily in the news mm-hmm. during the time that they were making this movie. Yes. But I thought, wow, that's funny that you include that, a scene like that in there, and then have that in the newspaper on the screen for us. And it's almost like, well, a prime minister, you know, or a foreign minister resigns mm-hmm. or is fired. And <laughs> when I when I saw all of this about Makiko Tanaka, I thought, well, you know, I wonder if this movie's just touching on that subject it wouldn't surprise me it wasn't some it wasn't just blatantly obvious yeah. or anything that 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 would ruin it but mm-hmm. but in this kind of case it is it's almost like something sekizawa would do it does if, seem if like if a very sekizawa sort of thing to do yeah if he wanted to uh, reference something without really referencing it it's almost yeah now after she got fired uh she uh did still hang around for a while in politics. Mm-hmm. Uh she was the Minister of Education, Culture, Sports, Science and Technology under the Democratic Party Prime Minister uh Noda. Prime Minister Noda who was uh, one of the few uh Democratic Party prime ministers that Japan has ever had. And she's also run as an independent as well as uh, in the Democratic Party. She 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 went from LDP to independent to Democratic Party. And so she uh she challenged authority uh, no matter what, mm. no matter where she was. So this is a very interesting figure, and I think that it's odd how this movie might very well be referencing that. Mm-hmm. I don't know if anybody else ever made this connection. I'm going to say probably not. I know, I think that was actually one of the first things that you mentioned to me when we were planning this podcast. When I discovered mm-hmm. that, I don't know how I discovered all of this about Makiko Tanaka, but then I thought, wait a minute, when was this? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I thought, wow, <laughs> I don't know if this is a, this, if this was a coincidence, it'd be a really funny one. <laughs> it'd be one heck of a coincidence. Yeah. Uh, so, it, but, and it's also touching on the possibility that eventually maybe there will be a woman prime minister of, of Japan. Mm-hmm. Because there's, there, there have been a couple of uh, candidates that people have thought about over the years as, as to possibly be the one. Who who gets uh who gets to be the female first female prime minister? As soon as that does happen, though, there's going to be so much pressure. Oh yeah, on that on that person because uh, of the just the expectations and the the pressure to to do a good job. All right, Brian, close us out with those economic figures. Well, we are uh, still in the extension of the lost decade, really. Here uh, in 2002. Economic growth was 0.28%. And the uh, the total GDP of Japan fell from $4.15 trillion to $3.98 trillion. Ouch. <laughs> so it, was, uh, it wasn't a very good uh, year. Uh, the, the part of this was the impact of 9-11 and other mm-hmm. uh, economic issues that were global. But also uh, Japan wasn't doing all that great economically at home either. It was just sort of more uh, stagnation, if anything. But the story of Kiryu doesn't end with this movie. Nope, the Kiryu saga continues in our next episode with Godzilla Tokyo SOS. We get a few more familiar faces in this one. Yes, it's the last of the uh, Masaki Tezuka trilogy. And the only instance of a direct sequel in the Millennium series. Yes, we we will enjoy that and uh, we hope to see you then. If you'd like to get a hold of us and send us some feedback, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is feedback at kaijuvision.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. 
Our podcast is available on Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, Blueberry, TuneIn, Podcast Addict, our YouTube channel, and on our website, kaijuvision.com. Thanks to Audiophiliac for creating our theme and bumper music, www.fiverr.com slash audiophiliac. If you like our podcast, please support us on Patreon. I'm Nathan Marchand, and I'm the podcast webmaster. And I'm Brian Scherchel, and I edited this podcast. Sayonara. Sayonara.